You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Good morning, Summit Community Church. It is pretty obvious I am not in the room with you right now. Uh, I had a last-minute exposure and a little bit of snottiness, so we felt it was best to uh, play it safe instead of being sorry. And so I am coming at you live uh, from the auditorium like 24 hours before you are going to see it. Uh, It is um, terrible that I don't get to be with you. It bothers me a lot, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach nonetheless. Same God, same Bible. And so this will suffice in the time period. So I wanted to begin today by showing you a picture. This is David Berkowitz. Many of you might know him by his more uh, famous nickname, which is the Son of Sam. David Berkowitz is one of America's most notorious serial killers. In the 70s, he went on a killing spree terrorizing New York and gaining worldwide recognition. He did that because he killed six people. He wounded nine others. He used a gun and a knife to do that. He evaded police and would leave the police letters, mocking them and promising future crimes. Uh, Eventually, he was caught, and when he was caught, he claimed that he committed the crimes because he was obeying the orders of a demon that had inhabited his neighbor's dog, hence his name, Son of Sam. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. He is serving those as we speak right now. And he later admitted that that dog story was actually a complete hoax that the dog did not speak to him. Instead, he chose to kill those people, those violent murders, and that he was also responsible for some arsons in the city as well. You see, David Berkowitz is a monster. I think you would agree with me on that. And I think he would agree as well because he referred to himself as one in the letters that he wrote to the police. In 1978, he went to prison where he will spend the rest of his life. About 10 years later, David Berkowitz started claiming that he is no longer to be referred to as the son of Sam. Instead, he would like to, from now on, to be referred as the son of hope. The reason is because David Berkowitz had become a Christian. He claims the forgiveness of Jesus Christ over all of his life, and especially over the six brutal and heinous murders that he committed. And now what comes to mind when you, for you when you hear of a man in prison for purposeful, premeditated, violent murder now claiming to be completely forgiven by Jesus Christ. Is part of you skeptical? Is part of you wonder about the seriousness of his faith or the seriousness of his understanding of forgiveness? Does part of you question the validity of it? Uh, is there a part of you that thinks uh, that, that you've heard this before? A man guilty of violent murder, now proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus after he is behind bars from where he will spend the rest of his life. You see, I bring that up today because I think many of us struggle with the idea in the nature of Jesus's forgiveness. I think we struggle both in the lives of David Berkowitz and also in our own lives as well. I think there's people within the sound of my voice today that are completely forgiven by Jesus Christ, but have no idea at all just how bad they needed it. I think there's others of us as well that are completely forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, and yet we live in guilt and shame and fear and a lack of forgiveness. And yet I still think there's others of us in this room right now 
that uh, claim the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but it's never actually seeped into our lives or seeped into our bones in such a way where it, it works out into any kind of actually true discipleship or faith. I share all that because it is the nature of Jesus's complete forgiveness that we will be addressing today as we continue and journey through the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Mark 2, verses 1 through 17. That's a lot of verses. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of break them up and put them under subcategories. And I want to do that at the beginning for those of you who are note takers so you know exactly where I'm going. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to see the need for forgiveness. We are going to see the gift of forgiveness. We are going to see the cost of forgiveness. We are going to see the call of forgiveness. And we are going to see the future of forgiveness. I'll say that again. The need, the gift, the cost, the call, and the future of forgiveness. That's where we're going today. But before we begin, would you bow with me uh, while I'm at home and you're in the sanctuary and let us pray and beg God for his intervention today. Uh, Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. We are grateful for this. We thank you for your perfect and timeless word. It is not bound by anything, by circumstances, by COVID, by sickness, by separation. It is perfect and withstanding and correct today. And we praise you for this, Father, especially today. We thank you. Please help us understand it rightly. That is the issue, is our understanding of it. Help us be led by your word and your spirit to make much of your son. And we ask all this in his precious name and all God's people in one accord said, amen. So let's jump in. What we're going to see today is we're going to see the need for forgiveness in the beginning. We find that in verses 1 through 4 of Mark 2, and it says this. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. You see, what we're going to see in our study of Mark is some patterns emerging. I'm not going to go through all of them that were here today. The one that I really want to focus on is the pattern of a crowd. Mark has showed us that there is a crowd that is blocking the door and that is following Jesus. For much of our study of Mark, we are going to see this theme of the crowds appear. And the crowds in the Gospel of Mark are always referenced as a numerable, as a large group, but as a passive group. They are always following Jesus, much like a celebrity. They want to see what he's going to do next, what magic trick he's going to do, how he is going to offend someone or share a really hard teaching. They are interested in that stuff, but they have no interest in the true following of Jesus. Crowds are passive onlookers. They're just attenders is what they are. They are not true disciples. Uh, Mark mentioned that this is taking place in Capernaum. That's very interesting because in the, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Capernaum will be referenced by Jesus as an unrepentant city. In other words, he will proclaim, that's a place where I went, that's a place where I did miracles, that's where a place where I preached the gospel and where I taught and where crowds gathered and yet no disciples were made from it. We must understand that this is the background of what is happening. Passive onlooking into what Jesus is saying and doing is definitely not what true discipleship is. I think everyone would agree with that. We must understand what else is happening here. It's not just a group of people passively looking in. Look at what their passive looking in has caused. There's no way for people with true faith to get in. They have created a barrier between Jesus Christ and people who are trying to express true faith. You see, it says the doorway is packed. If you've ever walked into a crowded room, you know you walk in the doorway and then you move away from the doorway. The last thing you would do is block the doorway because there's people coming from behind. 
If you block the doorway, you would only do that in one instance, and that's there's actually no more room in the place. You have to stand in the doorway. There can be no one coming in behind you at that point. We must let this lovingly caution us from the beginning. Here we have passive onlookers with no intention of true discipleship, no intention of true worship, no intention of true zeal or love or fervor for Jesus Christ. And not only is that bad for them, they are actually creating a barrier between Jesus Christ and those who are trying to express true faith. You see, there are many of us listening today that I think could be characterized more as a passive onlooker than a true disciple of Jesus Christ. COVID has been crazy. Look at it right now. I agree, but there has been so much sporadic church attendance and no involvement in groups and no one serving and no one in the lives of people. If you don't know anyone at this church, you are a passive attender. Instead, it's common to see people showing up on a Sunday every once in a while just to attend a show. We must be warned this is not the discipleship and the life that Jesus has asked us to live. But the encouraging thing is look at faith in this passage. True faith finds a way. These men with their friend who is paralyzed, find a way to get in. They, they tear the roof off to make it work. You see, their crazy actions highlight their crazy need, and Mark is using that to help highlight our crazy need as well. Let me illustrate it this way. I saw a news story recently of a mother who ran around her burning house collecting her five or six kids so they could make it out to safety. In the picture that I saw of her, she was smiling ear to ear and burned head to toe. But you know who wasn't? Her children. You see, her great need created a great situation for her, a great and daring opportunity that as a mother, she was willing to fulfill. You see, no fire, no matter how hot, was going to get in between her and her babies. Can my moms in the room give me an amen? You see, the need of these men leading to extreme action is Mark showing us something about the men and their need and also something about your and my need for what Jesus is going to give. You see, our problem correctly understood would lead to a running around the house as if it is on fire. And the problem is a lot of us, I don't think, understand the need that we have and the need this man has. But the good news of the Bible is that it is going to show us. Let's see what Jesus says. In the next verse, we will see Jesus' gift of forgiveness. We find it in verse 5. It says, Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's crazy, right? Jesus has a paralyzed person in front of him. And he's been healing crowds and crowds of people and casting out demons. And here is a man who is paralyzed in front of him. And he doesn't say you are healed. Instead, he says your sins are forgiven. And in doing this, Mark and Jesus are highlighting what our true need is and what the paralytic's truest need was. You see, our need is not freedom from COVID, church. It is not the healing of a disease or making enough money to pay the bills. It is not well-behaved kids or a fully stocked retirement account. Our need is not a spouse or a career that we hop, skip, and jump out of bed for every day. No, our greatest need is for the creator of the universe, the one who knows all, created all, designed all, to look upon your life and my life all the parts of it that are contrary to her, his will, the, the actions, the times where we go too far, the times where we did not go far enough, the very intentions of our heart to look upon all of those and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I forgive you. You see, it was this man's sin, not this man's suffering, that was his greatest paralysis, and Jesus was gracious enough to address that. You see, Jesus forgiving this man's sin shows us three things. The first is, is that the man had sin. Jesus wouldn't forgive him of sin if he did not have sin. 
It's important to say that. It's easy to understand, but it's important for us to list that, that you and I are creatures of sin. I'm a father of two little boys, and I'm constantly amazed at where they are learning their sinful behaviors. I swear I am not teaching it to them. And yet they appear every once in a while, almost as if they are infected with a disease that is working its way out. This is how it works for us. We are, uh, we are sinful all the way through from birth. Technically, it shows us that Jesus is the one whom sin is against. Think about it this way. Imagine you and your spouse were driving to church this morning and you got in a fight. I don't need to forgive you. You guys need to forgive each other, Right? Because the people who are giving forgiveness are the ones who have been sinned against. You see how that works, right? I'm not involved in this situation. I shouldn't be giving you forgiveness. And therefore, because Jesus is giving this man forgiveness, he is showing that this man's sin is ultimately, first and foremost, against Jesus himself. Yeah, I've always been interested by Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David is penning a psalm of repentance to God. He's, uh, he, he's writing a letter of remorse to God over the sin he's committed. And if you know anything about the life of David, you know he messed up a lot. You know, David, uh, priest, or Psalm 51, David would not be hired at Summit Community Church. I mean, he was a criminal. He, he had murdered people, a lot of people. He had, uh, he, he had lied, and he had used his authority in negative ways, and he had committed adultery. And in Psalm 51, he is penning this psalm of remorse and repentance to the Lord. And he says something that always intrigued me. He said, against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. And that always kind of bothered me because I felt like I could write a list of names of people that David had sinned. There was Uriah and there was Bathsheba. You know, there was real people that he, he sinned against. And yet he pins the psalm in such a way to say, against you and you alone, Lord God, have I sinned. And I think the reason David is doing that is not because he did not sin against Bathsheba and not because he did not sin against Uriah and his family. I think he's just using a priority thing, that our sin is first and foremost against King Jesus himself. And lastly, Jesus shows us this, that the man's paralysis, his true paralysis, was sin itself, not his physical needs. You see, Jesus forgiving this man's sin is, uh, is the same thing that he is going to forgive you and I of as well. It was this man's forgiveness of sin that he needed most not the healing of his diseases. And Jesus gives it freely and graciously. Notice how he didn't ask him a question. Notice how he didn't make him jump through hoops. Notice how he didn't make him uh, pass a test. No, Jesus graciously and freely gifts this man with forgiveness. And the same is true of you and I in Christ, is that Christ has freely given us that gift of forgiveness. And But the truth is, if you've ever forgiven someone, you know that forgiveness while it's freely offered to someone, is not free. And you know that if you've forgiven someone before. We'll see the cost of forgiveness in the next section of verses. Look at what it says in verses 6 through 12. It says, But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Notice how it was in their minds, not out loud. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And right away, Jesus perceived this in his spirit as they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he got up, and he took the mat, and he went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You see, the Pharisees have a huge problem with what Jesus has just done. You see, remember, we said earlier that giving forgiveness means that the sin was ultimately against you. And so Jesus here has forgiven that, uh, forgiven that man, showing or equating himself with God. You see, the Pharisees believed in a coming Messiah. They did. 
They believed in one of them, but they never thought that that coming Messiah would be the one to forgive sins. They were imagining social restoration. They were imagining a new political movement being ushered in. They were imagining the judgment of the godless. They were even imagining like the casting out of demons and stuff like that. But they never, ever, ever thought that the Messiah would be the one to heal sins or to forgive sins. And why is that? Because to Jews, only God himself can forgive sins. And so they ask a really good question. Only God alone can forgive sins, right? It's a great question, and they are right. Only God alone can forgive sins. But the problem is they don't realize that the God who can forgive sins is right in front of them in Jesus Christ. You see, it's interesting. They blame him of blasphemy in their hearts. If you read your Old Testament, uh, blasphemy was a very serious sin in the Old Testament, and it was punishable, and it was punishable by death. And so here is Jesus Christ, God, who can't commit blasphemy because he is God, right? But yet he is being convicted or he is being accused of blasphemy and the punishment of that blasphemy would be death. Here we see Mark even shining through right here, the shadow of the cross. Think about it. Jesus, not committing blasphemy because he is God, is being accused of blasphemy, will ultimately undergo the punishment of blasphemy. Death itself, we'll see that later in the gospel, even though he was not committing it. In fact, if you look later in the gospels, it is blasphemy, which is the very thing that the religious leaders use to crucify Jesus. But it goes further than that. If you have ever forgiven someone, you know that forgiveness comes with a cost on the forgiver. Let's imagine I let you use my Toyota Corolla, worth about $4,000 at this point, And let's say you're driving around town and you hit some ice and you run it into a tree and you're fine, but the car is completely totaled. You paying me $4,000 is not me forgiving you. That's you paying me the debt that you owe me, okay? Me forgiving you is me saying you do not owe me that money. That would be forgiveness. Now, in that situation, if I do that, is there a cost that I incur? Yeah, absolutely, right? $4,000 worth. I now have to figure out $4,000, or I now have to figure out a new car to drive. You see, forgiving you meant that I took the punishment. I took the cost on myself so you could go free. I took the hard part of it. And I want you to know this. This This happens all the time in forgiveness, whether it's monetary or not. Any act of forgiveness is you incurring a cost so that the other person can go free. That's always how it works. You see, our greatest need, sin, met by Jesus' amazing grace, is not a cheap gift. It seems easy in this story. He just said, your sins are forgiven. But we know where the story is going. You see, the sins being forgiven will be a huge cost for Jesus Christ. And we see this because look at what he did. He asked the Pharisees a question. And he asked them a trick question. He said, which one is easier, to say I forgive you or to heal someone? That's what he said to him. And now if I asked you that question, you would know the answer pretty easily. It is so much easier to say, I forgive you, than it is to heal someone. And then before the Pharisees can even answer that, what does he do? Uh, He does the perceived, that's a good point, perceived harder task. Before they can even answer, Jesus goes in and heals this man. So the man walks out in front of everyone. Now that's really important. It's like Jesus, the shadow of the cross is appearing again right here. What he is doing is they think the harder thing to do is to heal someone of paralysis. And so he goes ahead and does it to show them his authority. But little do they know, he's almost foreshadowing it. Little do they know his saying, I forgive your sins would actually be the harder thing, would actually be the more costly decision. And those of us who are in Christ and who know where the story is going know this. Jesus will die and will resurrect and will go to the grave 
to, to earn this man's forgiveness, which is much more difficult than paralysis. You see, he asks them a trick question, and the shadow of the cross kind of appears through it. You see, the cost of our sin is our biggest need, whether we feel like it or not. It was our sin that held him there. Much like the nails through his hands and through his feet on the cross, it was the wrath of God stored up for us for all of our sin that was pushed onto, that was expressed onto Jesus Christ. His torture, his suffering, his being spit on and abused, his being punched and ridiculed and shamed, his being stripped naked and made fun of in front of the very people he came to save, that was your and my sin holding him there. The very stored up wrath of God for us put on him. Why? He took the cost. You and I can go in forgiveness and freedom. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named John Weiss. He's in Kentucky, and he tells a story when he first understood the cost that Jesus bore for him. He shares that he was a little boy, and uh, he found some fireworks around his house, and so he did what any little boy would do, and they find fireworks. He set them off, So he went outside and he set off the fireworks and one of them kind of went crazy and it landed on his neighbor's porch and it burned a section of the neighbor's porch. Not in a bad way, just like a little bit of charring of the wood and he got caught and he was told, you know, you need to stay in your room. Your dad's going to come home and your dad will deal with you. And so all day he's like in his room, like super worried, you know, his dad's going to be really upset at him. And so his dad comes home and he watches his dad go to the neighbor's house and talk with the neighbor. And then his dad comes upstairs in his room and his dad looks at him and says, John, you were, you were planning on mowing the lawns tomorrow to earn some money. You're going to do that. And the first $45 or something like that that you make, you are giving to that neighbor to repay him for the damage that you caused today. And then his dad turned around and walked out of the room. And John expresses it like he was, he was so uh, he relieved There was no yelling, there was no punishment, there was no grounding, there was no spanking, there was no nothing. His dad was just very matter of fact. You're going to mow some lawns, you're going to pay for it, and and you're good to go. And so that night, he even went to bed kind of relieved, like, man, I can get $45 by lunchtime, and then I can make some more money and do what I want with it. And the next morning, he wakes up, and he gasses up his lawnmower, and he starts walking up the road to mow his first lawn, and he's, he's he's at the first house, and he sees his dad walking behind him carrying a lawn chair. And he he knows exactly what's going to happen. His dad is going to sit in that lawn chair and watch to make sure that he mows all the lawns that he promised to mow. And so he's feeling like a little ashamed about it, like, man, okay, whatever. And so he gets ready to pull, pull the string to start the mower, and his dad calls him over. And his dad opens the lawn chair and in one word says, sit. And John begins arguing. He says things like, you know, I got to mow these lawns. I got to make that $45. Like, this is my job. And his dad says it more sternly, sit. And so John sits down, and he watches his dad walks over to the lawnmower and pulls the string. He watches as his dad makes one pass and two passes and three passes. He watches as his dad mows the lawn, sweats, finishes, collects money, moves to the next house, turns the lawnmower on, mows mows the lawn, sweats, finishes, collects money. At the end of the day, his dad was dripping with sweat and tired. His dad handed him the money and said, go pay the neighbor what you owe. The rest of it is yours. Go to the gas station, buy yourself a drink or something like that. And John, was, he shares it. He was so ashamed. He was so ashamed. And so he was in his room that night, and his dad came upstairs and shared the gospel with him. He said, son, don't we have a great Savior in Jesus Christ? Like we earned the lawn mowing, and yet he mowed it on our behalf. 
Now, if you're like me, that is varsity-level parenting. Like, that is varsity-level parenting. But it's also a fantastic story to show you and I the cost of Jesus' forgiveness. It was not mere words. It was not just a simple phrase. It will cost him his very life, and our Christ freely and graciously gives it up. It's good news. But this good news has a call to it, and Jesus is going to show us that in the next verses. Look at what it says. Verses 13 to 14, Jesus went out again besides the sea and the whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, come and follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Notice how Jesus is again around a group of passive onlookers in some crowds. And yet he calls someone to follow him who is not a part of the crowd. This is eerily similar to what we saw in Mark 1. In Mark 1, if you remember, Andrew James uh, John, Simon were all called, and they were called in a really unique way. And here it's almost the exact same story again. Jesus is by the sea. He doesn't talk to the crowds. He issues a call to some people that are kind of not involved. They're on the fringes in a way. And then those people have a, a dramatic move towards him. They leave everything to follow him. But this, this situation is a little different because of who Matthew is or Levi, how it's mentioned. See, Matthew's a tax collector. You see, during this time period, the Roman tax law was a complex one. It was a complex tax law. So huge taxes, like a land tax, were collected by Romans themselves. But small taxes, like the tax on fish or the tax on goods, well, they were collected by Jewish contractors, like local Jewish contractors. And to do this job, you had to be the greediest of the greedy, the sickest of the sick. Uh, these were Jews who were pretty irreligious. They would line their pockets by taking money from their own people. You see, a serious Jew would never do this job because tax collectors were looked on as sinners and greedy. Their, their uh, testimony was not permissible to be used in court because you couldn't trust a tax collector to be trustworthy. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. A few weeks ago, I shared on um, uh, leprosy and how that makes someone unclean. They were viewed worse than lepers. You see, because a leper didn't choose to have leprosy. Tax collectors chose a life of sin and greed. They had to be people that were willing to fudge lines. They had to be people that were willing to line their pockets off the misfortune of others. They had to be people driven by greed and an entrepreneurial spirit that was not a good one, but one that wants to line their pockets even with the money of their own people. See, tax collectors were looked at as the worst of the worst. And here is Jesus Christ, the son of man, looking on the wretched sinner of a tax collector in Levi, uh, the wretched of the wretched, the sick of the sick, the gross of the gross, looking upon him, and he says, I'll have you if you can come to me. Come to me. I will take you. Think about it. He just showed through the paralytic that the most important thing that you and I need dealt with is our sin, not physical paralysis. And here he is calling the most vile of sinners publicly to himself. Such is the call of forgiveness for you and me. You see, the forgiveness of God earned by Christ is available to you, and it's available to me, but it has a call to it, a call to forsake everything, a call to die to oneself, a call to put occupation and relationships and spouse and kids and money and future and retirement and all the gifts you have on the table for King Jesus, for he has died for you and is worthy of all. Such is the call for forgiveness. It's a beautiful call, but it's a heavy call, a call to come and die, to give up everything for him. And Levi knows that this is the only way to true life, and so he follows him. Forgiveness of our sins requires nothing less. J.D. Greer at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham always shares this story, which I wanted to rip today. Uh, he shares a story of a time before he got at his church where uh, there were some missionaries or something who had come in, and they uh, issued a call during a service. They said, you know, we've been spending some time overseas. 
overseas, and we want some of you to leave your comfortable American lives and to come with us. And so there was a time of response in the service. You know, people are moving around and all that stuff. And there was this family at the back with a young little daughter. And the daughter got out into the aisle and walked up front to the altar and spent some time up there. And she goes back to her seat and her parents are like a little confused as to what was happening and what she was doing. So they engaged with her afterwards and they asked her what she was doing. And she was like, well, I don't know if I should go overseas. I'm kind of too young to go overseas anyways. But I wanted Jesus to know that my yes is on the table. Oh, do you see that? What a fantastic move of faith. You and I, in the presence of a forgiving and a gracious God, we respond to every question he asks before he asks it with a resounding yes. This is what true discipleship is. It is putting our yes on the table even before a question is asked. Matthew gets it here. Simon and Andrew and James and John and Mark 1 understood it as well. You see, the call of forgiveness will look different for all of us but it will always have the same DNA. It will be a call to forget your life and to follow up Je- and to follow Jesus. It will be a call to move away from the, from the crowd and towards him in true discipleship. Those of us who have tasted what true forgiveness is know there is no better way to live. Jesus makes that clear. It's a scary call, but it's a good call. And Jesus tells us throughout the gospels that forsaking our lives for him is actually the only way that we can have an abundant and a true life. And we know this because this call actually has a future that is too good to be true. And thus we'll close out by looking at the future of forgiveness. We find this in verses 15 through 17. It says, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And when the scribes who were the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Look at our king. He is relaxing. He's enjoying good food and good drink and good company with not good people. Matthew invites his friends And they're all terrible tax collectors, just like he is. And what does our king, what does Jesus Christ, the sinless man, do? He eats with them. He breaks bread with them. He communes with them. He enters relationship with them freely. You see, the Pharisees have a problem with this as well. First, he claimed that he could forgive sins. And now he's eating with the most vile of sinners. And Jesus teaches them very clearly and very simply, well, I didn't didn't come for righteous people. I came for sinners. I didn't come for healthy people. I came for sick ones. I didn't come for the fixed. I came for the damaged, for the broken. I've come to make the spiritually dead spiritually alive. You see, in the Old Testament, sin and forgiveness and then uh, sickness and healing are interrelated themes. In fact, some of the writers will use them interchangeably. Look at what Mark has done here. We started with a man who was physically sick, and what did he get? He got the forgiveness of sins. And then what do we have here? We have people that are legitimately sinful. And what does Jesus speak to them as? As a doctor who is healing diseases. But it goes way deeper than that. Here is also an allusion to the final marriage feast. You know, the Bible is clear that you and I are Jesus's bride. That means one day we will be walked down the aisle, much like a wedding. We will be with our true spouse, our true love, which is Jesus himself. And there we will dine and we will dance and we will drink and we will eat with our true spouse. All will be right. Tears gone. 
Pain, gone. Suffering, gone. Cancer, gone. Sin, gone. Disease, gone. Death, gone. Instead, we will be comfortably feasting with our true love in the way that life was designed to be. We will be at last with our good king when he comes back again. And those of us who are in Christ know that this relationship it begins now in Jesus Christ. Right now in our reigning king, there is the possibility for forgiveness that we can enjoy and commune with him in relationship right now, knowing that in the future he will come again and set all things right. Think about it. In the future, the sinners of all sinners, you and I, will be able to commune in a beautiful way with God himself. It's too good to be true. The, the future for the forgiven is a good one, and that should encourage you and I today. As we land the plane, there are a couple things that I want to say to close out our time. The first is that some of us really need to hear afresh the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for all sins. Listen to me, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you believe in him, you, you believe that he was God and that he bore your sins on the cross and he resurrected from the grave. If you believe in that, then you are a Christ follower. You are a son and daughter of the king of the universe and he has pronounced you forgiven. It does not matter what you have done before Christ. It does not matter what you have done after Christ. He has pronounced you forgiven and forgiven you are. You and I loathing in our sin and loathing in guilt and loathing in shame is not the life that Jesus Christ earned for us. Instead, that is us looking upon the cross, looking upon what it cost him and saying, wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough for my sin. It wasn't enough for the difficulty that I have created. You see, some of us need to today to repent and believe afresh that you are completely forgiven. The gospel means good news, and the news is really that good, that you, a sinner, at odds with God, have been completely forgiven by God himself through his work alone, a gift that you freely received. Remember how we started. We talked about the son of Sam, now son of hope. The news is really that good. Serial murder, forgiven. Pornography, forgiven. Adultery, forgiven. Gossip, forgiven. Lying, greed, divorce, anger, abuse, you name it. Pride, completely forgiven in Christ Jesus. Some of us need to hear that and bathe in that afresh today as we leave here. Live out of forgiveness, not live in such a way to earn forgiveness. Some of us today, if we are not a follower of Jesus, that is the offer that's on the table every week. There's no better good news than that, that you, a sinner at odds with God, can commune with God, can be brought into God, can be uh, uh, become in relationship with God by the work that Jesus Christ has done on himself. No work that you have to do. He mowed the lawn so that you would not have to. You just have to receive it, uh, to accept it, and to live out of that forgiveness. The offer stands for you. Jesus Christ will have you, just as you are. Just as you are, he will have you. Now, let me warn you, though, he ain't going to leave you. Uh, he'll have you just as you, are, as you are, but he's not going to leave you how he found you. It will be a life of obedience. It will be a life of uh, repentance. It will even be a life of time at, of suffering, but it will be a life totally marked by joy. And some of us in here today uh, resemble more of like the crowd that, Matt, uh, that Mark had kind of teased out than we do true disciples. I think some of us in here today need to be lovingly and cautionly, like uh, I need to caution and warn you as well. Jesus comes for all. It's all his already. 
It is all his. All of us need to remind ourselves afresh that true discipleship is following him wherever he leads, that it's a life of our yeses on the table before the question is even asked. Everything in our life moves below the priority of making much of our king. Some of us need to reckon with that today as our lives reflect more of a crowd behavior than they do a true disciple of Jesus. As we close out our time today, we have specifically chosen a song that we want you to sing together and we want you to meditate on the words of This song really teases out the truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us and just how bad we needed it, and then also how good our future is because of him. I hope as you sing today, you will also meditate on the words and allow it to affect and move your heart towards more uh, gratefulness and joy and worship of King Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we will sing. Father, we are so grateful for your son for the forgiveness in him, the forgiveness of our sins, his power, his ability, his love, his kindness to us. Father, help us taste him afresh today. Would you help us as we worship to grow our affections for him and what he has done? Shower us with gratitude in the gospel. Holy Spirit, we ask that right now that you would continue to draw brothers and sisters to yourself during this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' great and glorious name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.